This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful that we can come together today to study your word, that as we study your word, we are told by the Apostle Paul in his letter to Timothy that we are taught, we are corrected, we are rebuked, and we are instructed in righteousness. And it is in your, uh, through your word that was breathed out by you that we come to think as we ought to think, and we come to understand reality as you have created it and not as we have imagined it or as we have uh, created it in some sort of idolatrous fashion within the imagination of our own soul. And so, Father, it is often that we have cherished ideas that are changed as we come to understand your word, and we come to understand that that our lives are to be lived by walking by means of God the Holy Spirit on the basis of what is revealed in your word. And again and again, it just drives us back to understanding the nature of your word, the importance of it, the value of it as the psalmist says in Psalm 19 that it is more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold, and that we would value our understanding of your word and what it teaches above all other things in life. Father, we pray as we study today that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us that which we study and that we can have a greater understanding of how we walk with you and how we discern your will in our lives that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. Today and next week, I want to focus on this topic of peace. Every now and then when I'm studying the Word and I suddenly get look at things a little differently or see things a little differently, and it's sort of like uh, afterwards I say, that's really obvious. I wonder why I haven't seen that for 30 years. <laughs> and that happens uh, more frequently than, uh, uh, than I usually uh, talk about, but sometimes it's something really significant. And today is one of those, one of those days when we come to understand this particular verse and how the word peace is used in this verse. This is a verse that is frequently used in the teaching of many, uh, many people and has been taught this way by maybe pastors or Bible teachers that you've heard in the past. 
as a verse on divine guidance, emphasizing that one of the ways in which we come to understand how the Lord is leading us is through an inner sense of peace. We're going to discover that that's not true for a number of reasons, and we're going to take a look at that. And so we're asking the question, and peace, is it an inner guide or is it uh, an external standard? Now, when our Lord taught, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he taught using a technique of contrasting truth with error. Frequently he would say in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, and then he would make a statement that was related to a false interpretation of Scripture. The Sermon on the Mount is actually Jesus Christ's interpretation, and of course God's interpretation, of the Mosaic Law in contrast to the false interpretation that had accumulated through two or three hundred years of tradition uh, among the Pharisees and Sadducees within the religious community uh, of Israel. So he is stating the accurate interpretation of the Mosaic Law in contrast to the false interpretation that had become sort of a commonly held uh, view among most uh, of the Jewish community at that time. In I believe in any generation, in any culture, there's always what I call a popular religion. There are a lot of Christians in a lot of churches that ought to know better, but they still hold to certain popular uh, ideas and that are false, popular ideas about what is said in the Scripture, simply because these are it's, they're not taught very well. They sort of enter into the culture of of modern evangelical Christianity, and they're, they're not really challenged a whole lot, and eventually they sort of become sacred cows, and people are afraid to say anything about them. But uh, that happens in across the board in almost any religious system. You get these popular ideas and these popular notions that uh, sort of take on a life of their own, and that's part in, of what the Lord was doing, was correcting those, those kinds of ideas that had entered into the everyday belief system of the, uh, 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 of the Jewish religious system at that time. So he would say, you have heard it said, then he would state something, and then he would contrast it with the truth and say, but I say unto you, and then he would correct that interpretation. I'm going to follow a pattern, something like that today, that with regard to discerning or understanding God's will in our life, that many of us have not been taught correctly on this particular uh, area, especially with regard to the verse that we're studying this morning. You've heard it said that God has a perfect will for every decision in our life. And that is really taken to mean that when I say every decision, I mean every decision, that God has a specific will for you in every, every single decision that you make in life. You've heard it said that we should maybe live in the center of God's will. That's another popular way in which it's, uh, it's stated, and that God will always reveal to us precisely what he 
wants us to do, what his will is for us in any particular circumstance, whenever we're struggling with any sort of question about uh, what we should do. We usually think of this in terms of the big questions of life related to marriage, related to education, related to career, related to uh, where we should live, whether we should buy a house or not buy a house, whether we should uh, invest in this or invest in that, things of that nature. But it also boils down to the many small decisions in life because we all understand that most of the major events in our life have really turned upon very small Uh, what may have appeared at the time to have been insignificant decisions, and yet they ended up having a great impact on things. And we have often heard it said that one of the keys to discerning this will, the will of God, is an inner state of peace or tranquility when that decision is made, that we take it to the Lord in prayer and that when we make that decision that God sort of confirms to us that it's the right decision because we have a, uh, a, a, a peace of mind. There is a peace that pa- surpasses all comprehension, quoting Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, that this peace that surpasses all comprehension sort of guarantees us that we have made the, the right decision and we're living in the center of God's will. There are other things that come into play in this. We are often told that the way to discern God's will is you uh, not only pray about it, but you also seek guidance from uh, wise or mature uh, Christians. You take uh, also God will open or close doors through various uh, uh, various uh, circumstances. And so we often end up, without realizing it, putting the emphasis not on the objective revelation of God's Word, but on subjective inner impressions, subjective inner interpretations of external circumstances, and we often end up something doing something like what we see Maxine doing in this cartoon. I just couldn't resist this when I found it. She says, after starting a new diet, I altered my drive to work to avoid passing my favorite bakery. I would say my favorite Shipley Donut Shop. I uh, accidentally drove by the bakery this morning, and as I approached, there in the window were a host of goodies. I felt this was no accident, so I prayed, Lord, it's up to you. If you want me to have any of those delicious goodies, create a parking place for me directly in front of the bakery. Sure enough, on the eighth time around the block, there it was. God is so good. Well, that's how we often look at trying to figure out God's will, as if it's some sort of uh, uh, shell game that God plays with us, and he's got it hidden under one of the walnut shells, and he's constantly moving it around, and we have to guess at which one it is, and he's going to give us an idea of which one to choose because we're going to have some sort of of, uh, inner peace. That's uh, what usually comes out of this book. So you've heard it taught that way, but I'm going to teach you uh, differently today. But I say to you that this is not biblical, and actually this is an extremely subtle but dangerous form of mysticism. It's also a way of, and all mysticism is really a way of denying the authority of God and rejecting the authority of God because it is substituting some sort of inner Uh, uh, mental state, whether it's an emotional state or a mindset or something like that, for the Word of God. 
And all of this ultimately boils down to understanding some key things about uh, just bibliology, that God has revealed himself objectively to us through history, and that that objective revelation ceased with the closing of the canon of Scripture. And since then, God has been silent. And there's a reason for that silence. And if God is communicating anything to us in any sort of way, whether it is verbal or nonverbal, it is a form of special revelation. If we think that God is going to vibrate us one way or vibrate us another way to, uh, to tell us to go left or go right, then that is a form of, of revelation. And we either believe that revelation ceased or we don't. And if we believe that it hasn't ceased, then we end up with a whole host of, of confusion because then we have to say, well, what's the criteria for determining what is revelation today and what isn't? In the Old Testament, you had the prophets. In the New Testament, you had the apostles. And they sat as a, a, as a guard, as it were, to determine what was and was not uh, from God, what was and was not revelatory. So if we're going to make claims that we have any kind of revelation today, then who, who is it that decides whether or not it is because we have no apostles or prophets on the scene anymore? So this is very important to take a look at this and to take a look at all of the things that, that relate to the exegesis of this particular, this particular passage. The key to understanding what is going on here in Colossians 3.15 is to understand the context. Remember, as I always say, that, that um, one of the major uh, problems we have in, in a lot of Bible teaching is that people take the text out of the context and you're left with a con job. And that is exactly what happens. People go to verses like this and they just look at that first part of the verse that says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And so this is then expressed as an absolute for discerning, uh, discerning truth. We skip past this slide. Here we go. Colossians 3.15, just the first part of that verse. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. But that first part of the verse is part of the second part of the verse, which says, to which also you were called in one body. And then we have a second command, and be thankful. There are two commands here, to let the peace of God rule in your hearts and be thankful. So we have to understand that in the context. But one of the key interpretive clues here is that is that second part that talks about to which you were called in one body. The purpose for letting the peace of God rule in your hearts is related to maintaining the unity of the body of Christ. Well, wait a minute. That doesn't sound like it's there to help me pick what college to go to or what person to marry or what kind of decision to make in order to, uh, when to, where to live or when to retire or any of these other major life decisions. Just reading the whole verse tells us that Paul isn't talking about making decisions. He's talking about maintaining unity in the body of Christ. And if you remember, as we've gone through Colossians, this has been a major theme throughout this epistle is related to the body of Christ and submitting to the authority of God. 
So as we think about the way discerning the will of God is frequently taught, I want to expand on it just a little bit. The idea that God has a perfect will for every believer's life is understood that every single decision, great and small, no matter how irrelevant or minor it may seem to us, is going to be uh, part of God's will, and God is going to inform us as to what that should be, how we can always make that right decision. The problem is, if we miss it, for example, we may end up never being able to recover it. For example, if you miss it and you think that you that God is leading you to go to UCLA and God's perfect will for your life is to go to Harvard. I can't quite imagine that, but this is a fictional example. Then you may miss it because the the influences, the friends, the opportunities, the choices that are come going to come by living on the West Coast are going to be quite different from those that will uh, that you'll see on the East Coast. You'll meet a completely different people. You may end up. Uh, uh, marrying somebody completely different. You may have a different major. You may have many different things that come along, and it sets your life in a completely different uh, direction. So if you miss something that appears to be a minor decision, it may radically alter the rest of your life, and you never get back. So there's a sort of an internal logical problem with this center of God's will idea to begin with. Um, one of the most uh, holy-sounding ways it's given for discerning this is this is the idea that there's some sort of inner communication from God the Holy Spirit. This is often taught as the inner voice of the Holy Spirit. You'll hear people refer to an episode from the life of Elijah where he has run from God. He's left uh, uh, Jezreel under the, the fear of the threats of uh, Jezebel, and he's fled down toward uh, Mount Sinai, and he's hiding out down there. And then we hear, uh, you know, God comes in the in the storm, the tornado, and everything. And then there's quiet, and uh, people say, "Well, he's listening to the, that still small voice of God," and that's how we discern what God wants us to do. That is totally uh, taken out of context in that particular passage. Then people talk about this as inner impressions that God gives us some sort of an inner impression, a feeling, a glow, a buzz, whatever it might be. And they confused it. This is really a confusion with the kind of special revelation God gave people in the Scriptures. And often you'll hear people go to passages such as uh, Ezekiel chapter 1 when God calls, calls Ezekiel and gives him specific instructions. That's special revelation. Or, for example, in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, Paul receives special revelation and special instruction from God. All of these examples in the Scripture where God tells a, a believer, a prophet, an apostle, or someone something specific to do are all examples of special revelation. There, there's no, if there's no more special revelation, then we can't expect that. Uh, anymore, and they're all given during a time when there's an incomplete canon, uh, canon of Scripture. And so part of this criterion that is often suggested for this inner uh, guidance of God is the, this phrase, the peace of God. And this is how this is normally taught. 
As we read in Colossians 3.15, the opening phrase says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And then what is taught is that the verb here, uh, which is uh, brabuo, that's a present active imperative, uh, that this verb means to uh, act as an arbiter, an umpire, a decision maker. Uh, the word was used in the first century to describe uh, officials who uh, oversaw the athletic games of the Greeks and would make judgments and decisions at these athletic contexts, uh, contests. And so the conclusion that's taught is that we should let the inner peace of God uh, be this umpire. It should call the decisions of our lives, and as we experience an inner sense of calm uh, when we make these decisions, we can know God's perfect will for our lives in every decision. Unfortunately, this, this doesn't pass the smell test and it doesn't pass the exegetical test. The exegetical test is the, the more important one, and it uh, also violates a number of things that are going on in the midst of our passage in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. This has nothing to do with what Paul's talking about in these verses, as we'll see in just a minute. Uh, secondly, it puts a subjective mental or emotional state in authority over the direct revelation of God, over the Word of God. It violates the meaning of peace it is, as it is used contextually in not only Colossians, but also in the broader Pauline epistles, as well as in the, uh, in the New Testament. It's a subtle and dangerous form of, of mysticism, and uh, Paul, remember, is writing against mysticism in Colossians. So why would he suddenly say something in such a, in such a vague, ambiguous way as to give the mystics he's writing against a foothold against him? That just wouldn't make sense at all. So it does end up making a subject, uh, an authority out of a subjective state of mind. Two examples that came to my mind was in this idea that if I make a right decision, I'm going to have certain confirming emotional sense of uh, well-being or stability would be from, from just everyday experience. A parent has to corporally dis discipline their children. They have to spank them. Now, that is something that God says to do, that if you uh, do not discipline your child uh, corporally, then they will not learn authority orientation. This is clearly taught in, in, uh, in Proverbs. But a good parent isn't going to feel good about giving his child, their child, a spanking normally. They, um, if they're doing it the right way, they're not going to like it. You know, I remember hearing my parents say and others, and you've heard this and experienced this, that it's going to hurt the parent more than the child because they don't want to spank the child. They don't want to bring that pain into life. So you're doing the will of God because that's what the Word of God says, but it doesn't make you feel good. So there's one example that contradicts this whole, this whole way of teaching. Another is found in the Scriptures. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. The circumstance here is that Jesus is about to be arrested 
and where he will be taken into custody by the Roman authorities, and then he will uh, be put on trial, and he will go to the cross where the perfect Son of God, the sinless Son of God, is going to receive the imputation of our sin, and he is going to go through an incredible amount of, of suffering and misery that we can never imagine as he pays the penalty for our for our sin. And while he is contemplating this in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told some interesting things about his mental and emotional state. Now, you have to remember, Jesus is sinless. So nothing that's going on here is a sin. Nothing that go, that's going on here is wrong. Okay, verse 36. Jesus has uh, has come to Gethsemane with the disciples, and he says, <clears throat> Scripture says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. He is going through intense emotional turmoil. Wait a minute, I thought that if you're in fellowship and walking with God, you don't get emotional. Wrong. Jesus got incredibly emotional here. The terms that are used here, first of all, the verb uh, translated he, he began to be sorrowful is uh, lupeo. This is a word that has a variety of meanings. It means to grieve. Sometimes it's translated to experience pain, sorrow, fear, these are profoundly deep, tumultuous emotions. Sometimes it's even translated uh, to be anxious. The second word that is used here that's translated deeply distressed is the Greek word ademoneo, meaning to be depressed, to be full of anguish or sorrow. Now, in his humanity, Jesus experiences these emotions. These emotions are not sin. Now, this is a hard thing for a lot of people to grasp because the way we've often been taught is that if you have certain emotions, that's sin. No, what's sinful is when your volition chooses to uh, react to those emotions in a sinful way. There are times when we have certain emotional responses to certain events, Sort of like if somebody walks up and kicks you in the shin, it's going to hurt. There's nothing you can do about the fact that you're hurting. What may be inappropriate is what you do in response to the hurt. That's when the sin comes in. The physical pain gives you a test as to whether you're going to handle it in a biblically correct manner or not. So we go through certain things in life. Someone dies. We experience grief. There's nothing wrong with grief. There's nothing wrong with sorrow. Uh, the Apostle Paul makes it clear in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we grieve at the time of the death of a loved one, but not like those who have no hope. So there's nothing wrong with the emotion that comes. What's wrong is what we do with that emotion. And so there are things that are going to happen in life when we have uh, we're in, uh, in under intense pressure, and there's going to be just a turmoil of emotion going on inside of us. That's part of our humanity. It's what we do with that. Are we going to trust God and obey his word despite how we feel? Uh, 
or are we going to let those emotions uh, drive us to greater into emotional sins such as anger, bitterness, uh, revenge, mental attitude sins, things of that nature, or physical overt sins? Or are we going to say, well, I'm in a tough situation here. Of course, I'm upset. I'm sorrowful. There's anxiety here. God is going to get me through this, and I'm going to trust him even though I feel this way. The feeling, the experience of those emotions is not sin. Jesus is experiencing these tumultuous emotions while he is there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so in verse 38, he then talks to Peter and John. He says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. And here he uses a noun, but it's a form uh, or based on the verb lupeo, which we was just translated as sorrow or fear or, or, uh, or grief. And he says, here he uses the word perilupus. The verb before was lupeo. This is a compound word. Peri is the uh, Greek preposition meaning something that goes around like a periphery. Uh, something that, that goes around something. So he feels as if he is being surrounded by sorrow. He's under such intense pressure that, that he begins to sweat drops of blood. That tells you how intense his emotional turmoil is, yet he's not going to sin. But that pressure is there. He's being squeezed emotionally as in his humanity he perceives what is about to transpire, both in terms of the physical suffering he will encounter as he is tortured before he goes to the cross, as well as the spiritual horrors that he will encounter when he goes to the cross. Now, Jesus is not experiencing the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, and yet he is praying to the Father in terms of the Father's will. Verse 39, he says he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He knows what God's will is. and At the same time, he's, as he anticipates that, he's experiencing these profound emotions. Uh, I often think of some of the martyrs in in uh, history, as they have contemplated, for example, being uh, burned at the stake for, during the time of the uh, when Mary uh, Tudor was Queen of England, and she uh, martyred over 300 Christians on the fields of uh, Smithfield uh, during her reign and burned them alive at the stake. What must it have been like? for those men to go to the stake. One was Thomas Cramner. Cramner had been the Archbishop of Canterbury under uh, under Henry and under Edward, and he was a Protestant, and under the pain of, and the threat of torturing and killing his family, he had recanted of his Protestant convictions while in prison. And even though he had recanted Mary, Queen Mary decided, you're still going to go to the, uh, you're still going to be burned at the stake. You're still going to be, uh, you're still going to lose your life. And so he recanted of his recantation. And while the flames were rising around his body as he was tied to the stake, he held out his right hand, which had signed his recantation, so that it, that this, this hand that had betrayed his Lord would burn off first. 
And while he did that, he sang hymns to the glory of God until he was consumed by the flames. Now you just think about what it must be like to contemplate what is about to happen to you physically in circumstances like that and to think that we're going to have this inner calm and peace and tranquility and not experience the the anxiety and the fear and the worry that is normal. But here's an example of a man who normally would have experienced that, but he didn't give in to it. He didn't allow that to dominate his thinking. He didn't choose to sin on the basis of those emotions. So we have to understand that certain emotions are going to normally, naturally arise in our soul. But what we do with them is where the issue of sin or not to sin takes place. But in many decisions we make in life, doing the right thing, doing that which glorifies God, is not always going to be pleasant. It's not always going to be fun. It's not always going to be something where we're going to know that it's right because we have this inner, inner calm, inner peace. In fact, doing what God wants us to do may bring us into circumstances like our Lord faced where we, we are experiencing some anguish, we're experiencing emotional turmoil as we face an extremely difficult situation, but because we know that is God's will because of his word, we are able to go through that and obey him and glorify him. So from this example from Jesus, we see that we do not always have this kind of uh, peace. And what I'm saying is we've misunderstood and misinterpreted this whole concept of uh, that we run into, this whole concept of, of peace that Scripture is not saying that the way you discern the will of God in your life is that you're going to have this this inner turmoil. As we look at this passage, we have to understand what Paul is talking about when he speaks of the peace of God. And contextually, this is related to something he introduced back in Colossians chapter 1, which is reconciliation. Those of you who have been studying Romans with me on Thursday nights, we're in Romans chapter 5 where Paul is teaching about the results of justification, one of which is the peace that we have with God because we have been justified. We have peace with God. That peace with God is not an inner state of contentment. It is a recognition, the reality of the removal of the state of hostility between God and man. And when we studied the doctrine of reconciliation as we went through Colossians chapter 1 and also in Romans chapter 5, I took us to a passage in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, we have a development Uh, for Paul, of the term peace and how it is used for him in terms of its reference to reconciliation. He says in Colossians 2.14, for he, referring to Jesus Christ, he himself is our peace. 
See, he's talking about something objective. He's talking about Jesus' work on the cross as a as the fulfillment of the typology of the peace offering from the Levitical offerings in the Old Testament, and that by Jesus' atoning work on the cross, that the wall of separation between man and God is removed in reconciliation. So he says, he himself is our peace who has made both one. Now, what's he talking about there when he says making both one? In the context, if you remember, he's talking about the fact that prior to the cross, there was a separation between the Jew and the Gentile. God had a special plan for the Jew, and the Jew was in a position of of spiritual privilege and blessing because God had chosen to uh, work out his plan, to reveal his plan through Abraham and the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so there was a, a, a barrier. Not only what did sin bring a barrier between the human race and God, but sin also created a barrier between Gentile and Jew. And the death of Christ on the cross destroys the barrier between God and man, but it also destroys the barrier between Jew and Gentile. And he says here, For he himself is our peace who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So the peace that is accomplished objectively at the cross between God and man has an application in that it breaks down the enmity between Jew and Gentile so that when Jew or Gentile uh, trusts in Christ as Savior, they become part of a new body, and they are united in Christ in this new body, the body of Christ, the church, the universal church in the church age. So here in Ephesians, which you need to recall is the uh, is the mirror almost of Colossians. Paul wrote these both uh, very close to one another, and their themes are very similar, and a lot of things that are said in one are, are developed in a different way in the other, so that helps us to understand these things, is that what Paul says is that at the cross, Christ destroyed that enmity, that hostility, not the hostility here between God and man, but between Jew and Gentile, because he fulfills the law. In the, in the commandments, the Jews were to remain separate from the Gentiles. But that aspect, because of the destruction of the law, that is removed by Christ's reconciling work on the cross. And so verse 16 moves from talking about the reconciliation between Jew and Gentile and their unity now in the body of Christ and he says that he might reconcile them both to God. That's talking about the breaking down of that barrier, the destruction of the barrier between uh, humanity and God, fallen humanity and God, so that he might reconcile them both to God, what? In one body, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace. What is this? This is reconciliation. This is the same thing Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 down through 21, that we are 
ministers of reconciliation. We are, as ambassadors of Christ, we are proclaiming the message to be reconciled to God. He, Christ accomplished that work of reconciliation objectively at the cross, but it is not realized experientially until we trust in Christ. And when we trust in him, then we are reconciled to God. As we enter into the body of Christ, as believers in the body of Christ, there is now uh, unity in the body among the different members. Jew-Gentile is not an issue anymore, as we've studied in relation to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where there's neither Jew nor Gentile, bond or slave, male or female, all of which relates to the fact that these were distinguishing aspects under the Mosaic Law. If you were a Jew, you had close access to God in the temple, but Gentiles didn't. If you were free, you, a free Jew, you had close access to God, but slaves did not. If you were a male free Jew, you had close access to God, but slaves, uh, slaves and women did not. So here he's talking about the fact that in Christ now, these external social aspects of your of ethnicity, of uh, social status and of gender no longer uh, are, are an issue in direct access to God. Now that's Colossians two. I mean Ephesians chapter two, but that's not the last that Paul develops this uh, theme of peace. He does it even more in Ephesians chapter four. So you might want to turn over with me from Ephesians two, uh, flip over a couple of pages to. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now this is important because as we look at uh, I mean, Colossians chapter uh, 3, verse 15, what we see is that... Um, we are also to walk in light of that that calling with which we have called, we have been called in three three fifteen states. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called. This is a reference to the the uh, calling of God at salvation. This is what we were brought to in terms of the body of Christ. So we had that same idea in Ephesians four eleven. We're to walk worthy of that calling to which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to what? Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So peace here is not talking about inner tranquility. It's talking about maintaining unity within the body of Christ and not giving in to schisms and divisions over uh, irrelevant things. Now, there is a point you maintain unity not at the expense of doctrine or the expense of truth. You maintain unity on the basis of truth, and we understand that. But what I'm emphasizing here is that keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is that peace becomes the peace, the reality that we have in Christ that that barrier between us has broken down so we're one in the body of Christ is to be an external standard so that when there are problems in the body of Christ, part of the way in which we handle that is to remember there is to be peace in the body of Christ and so we're not going to give in to petty differences and personality conflicts 
and things of that nature that frequently cause division in the body of Christ. We're not going to give in to people who are uh, internal politics in local churches or people who are using the positions in the local church as a platform for uh, for trying to get some sort of power and authority in the church. I never understood why people would do that, but some people do. And then uh, Ephesians 4, 4, Paul goes on to say, there is one body, and that's the body of Christ, and one spirit, that is the Holy Spirit who indwells and fills every believer, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. And so we see that contextually in terms of Colossians, in terms of how Paul uses the terminology of peace and calling, that this is not something that relates to an inner sense of tranquility and calm, but it's talking about an external reality of uh, related to our unity in the body of Christ. We see this emphasis on um, we see an emphasis on the body of Christ in a couple of different passages in Colossians 1:18, for example. Paul had stated he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Then in Colossians 1.24, again, he mentions the body. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of the body, which is the church. So here we see that throughout chapter 1, chapter 2, Paul has been emphasizing the importance of the body of Christ for the Colossians because they are being ripped apart because of these false teachers that have come in. This is related in the same context to what Paul has said about reconciliation. He brings that in in Colossians 1, 20 to 22. By him, that is by Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made what? Peace through the blood of his cross. So here we have peace used in Colossians 1, in the sense of relating to reconciliation, not something that is related to an inner state of, of calm or tranquility. Verse 21, he says, You who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, and now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So as we look at these verses, we realize that peace, as Paul talks about peace, is not on this sense of an internal uh, sort of barometer related to uh, calmness or tranquility. So back to Colossians 3.15, he uh, gives this command. It's a third-person command, which is uh, saying, well, let you do this, or it's really a mandate. Let the peace of God, peace of God rule in your, in your hearts. Well, before we talk about rule, I want to talk about this meaning of hearts. In modern American idiom, reference to the heart, how you feel in your heart, you want to put something on your heart, all this heart terminology is commonly understood to be emotion, commonly understood to be uh, sort of an internal emotional state. And so the way this is read through our cultural grid is that we're to let the peace of God rule in our emotions. So we read it that way. But that's not how the word heart is used in Scripture, neither the Old Testament or the New Testament. The word heart ultimately refers to that which is the center of something. It's never used to refer to the 
organ inside the body that pumps blood. It's never used that way any, anywhere in Scripture. It always is used in the metaphorical sense of referring to that which is at the center, the core of something. And so it refers to the immaterial part of the human being. In many cases, it relates to the soul, uh, just as a general term for the soul in all of its components. But in about uh, 75 or 80% of its uses in the Old Testament and New Testament, it refers more to the mentality of the soul. There are a few places where it refers to volition, and there are a few places where it does refer clearly to emotion, but the vast majority of its uses, at least 80%, and I've gone through almost every one of them, uh, it refers to the mentality. And that fits, doesn't it, with what we've studied with Paul and, and, and through all the Scripture. We are to think on these things, Paul says. He doesn't say emote on these things in, in Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 8, 8 and 9. In other places, we're to, to study the Word. Uh, again and again, we have the principle laid down in Scripture that God has revealed himself to us in language, and we do not understand him without using reason, which is what a reliance on emotion would be. We understand him through the study of his word, through the normal use of words and grammar and syntax and studying things in light of their uh, biblical and historical usage, interpreting the writers in light of their uh, of their culture and background. So the emphasis is on thought. And if you look at just the next verse in Colossians 3.16, we're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Well, if he's in verse 15, if he's talking about a state of emotion, then he's going to contradict himself in the next verse by emphasizing the study of the Word and the internalization of that special revelation of God. And so it doesn't fit the context to interpret heart here as an emotional state. We're to let this external truth, this truth of this external uh, unification of within the body of Christ be the umpire that oversees our horizontal relations with one another. We're not to let things come along that are going to fragment and fracture us on the basis of personality or the basis of, of likes or dislikes or petty politics in a local church or things of that nature. What we are to do is to let the truth that we are united in the body of Christ govern the way in which we relate to one another so that we can maintain that bond of peace that we have in the body uh, in the body of Christ, which fits the context. He says, let this external reality of our peace with God uh, rule or govern your thinking, to which, now that refers back to the peace of God. It is a uh, uh, feminine uh, relative pronoun there, a relative singular pronoun, so it must refer back to peace and not to hearts because hearts is plural. So he's saying to which, that is this peace that we have with God is that to which we were called in one body. That's the focal point here is the realization in our experience of the unity of the body of Christ on the basis of this external uh, 
uh, external rule. We were called in one body and to be thankful. Now, uh, usually when Paul is emphasizing being thankful, it's because we're facing circumstances for which we would not normally be thankful. So we are to have a divine viewpoint mental attitude towards whatever these circumstances are that if we just operated on our sin nature might lead to division, antagonism, hostility, but we're going to let the objective reality of our unity in the body of Christ be the guide for how we handle interpersonal relationships. And whatever tensions may come into that, we are going to be thankful because this gives us an opportunity to apply God's word and to see him work in and within the body of Christ to maintain uh, that unity. Now, that gives us an understanding of this passage, that this isn't a passage that's talking about how to discern the will of God in your life as to who you're going to marry, where you're going to go to school, what kind of job you're going to have, that this is not talking about that. It's talking about the application of the peace that we have with God in terms of our horizontal relations with one another. But I know that there are other questions related to, well, then how do we discern the will of God? And there may be some questions about Philippians 4, 7, and following how the phrase peace of Christ is used there and a couple of other passages. So next week when we come back, I'm going to step back and look at this whole issue of how do we discern the will of God? How do we make decisions in life that are consistent with the will of God as we are seeking to glorify him uh, in everything that we do with our heads bowed and our eyes closed? Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to reflect upon what you have provided for us and the remarkable truths that we have related to the reconciliation accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. When he paid the penalty for our sin, that all sin was paid for, the debt was canceled, and that in an objective sense, we were reconciled to God. But in a personal sense, there still needs to be an application of that in terms of our individual reconciliation to God. And Father, we pray that if there is any individual here who is not sure of their salvation or they're uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ paid the penalty to reconcile you to God at the cross, and now you need to be reconciled by trusting in Christ and him alone for your salvation. It doesn't require any other activity on your part. It doesn't require us to go out and impress God by reforming our life or making some kind of bargain with him or anything else. It is simply accepting a free gift that was accomplished for us, and that means to just believe or accept or receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, the one who paid the penalty for sin. Now, Father, we pray for all of us in the body of Christ that we might take these truths, these principles, these doctrines that relate to our unity in Christ and that the reality of what was accomplished at the cross in terms of that reconciliation uh, among human beings that had been rent asunder by sin, that that reconciliation at the cross also accomplishes and lays down a rule for our reconciliation horizontally and that we might demonstrate experientially that which is true uh, in terms of our unity in the body of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name.
Amen.